excited about that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. And we're going to be at chapter 7 today. Book of Acts, chapter 7. Now, taking his seat in his chambers, the judge, he faced the, uh, the opposing lawyers that were there in the room with him. And he said, I, I've pre- been presented by both of you with a bribe. Both lawyers begin to squirm a little bit, you know, thinking, oh no, we got caught. He says, you, Attorney Leon, gave me $15,000, and you, Attorney Campos, gave me $10,000. The judge reached into his pocket and he pulled out a check. Handing it to Leon, he said, now then I'm returning $5,000, and we're going to decide this case solely on its merits. (sighs) everybody's even. And that's really the way it's supposed to be when you get to a court system. Everybody's supposed to come in on even ground, and nobody's supposed to have any advantage with the judge at all. They're supposed to be equal to be heard. And when we are being judged, I think we want fairness. We want people to, to listen to our side of the story and not to ignore it because they're good friends with the other person or maybe because they've been bribed. The issue of fairness is certainly one that pertains to our topic this morning in our Scripture in the book of Acts chapter 7. Last week we kind of looked at, and week before we looked at Acts chapter 6, and we saw that, that the, 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 apostles, the apostles had asked the church to find for themselves six men who would be able to take care of the Grecian widows in the church to meet their needs. And and so they selected six of these guys who were Hellenistic Jews themselves. They uh, They were able to then meet the needs. And one of them in particular, all of a sudden we got introduced to, not just in the listing of names, but all of a sudden he has an opportunity to go out and do wonderful things with miracles and signs and wonders. And he draws the attention to Christ in his own preaching and teaching, not just waiting tables for the Grecian widows. A man by the name of Stephen. Now, in the end of chapter 6, we see that he goes into this debate system with uh, the leaders of the Jerusalem church there, the, not the church, but the, the, the temple uh, of the Sanhedrin. And, and he's successfully, I think, in my opinion, debated against them. And it was a formal debate they had set up. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And, and the premises they were all agreed upon as to what could be, you know, could be done and how it was going to, uh, and so he goes through it point by point. And they are there to refute him, and they really don't know what to do. And so what they ended up doing is they hire some guys to lie. And to say, hey, we, we heard him blaspheming God. We heard him speaking against the, you know, the, the, the old, the testament, the law. We heard him doing this. We heard him, and they're bringing up all these charges and accusations and their lies against him. And, and so really, in the court system that they have established for Stephen, it's not fair. And yet, when they looked at his face, they saw the face of an angel. You see, he was clearly the winner, but there was a problem though. His conclusions were unacceptable to the sitting judges because they felt that what he was saying was a destruction of their whole religious principles and the foundation on which they had been building their own idea of of worship and religion. And so since they couldn't win this debate, they brought these fraudulent charges up against him and they deliberately misrepresented Stephen, what he had been saying about Moses and about the law, 
And they stirred the people up into a frenzy. And now there is mob action. And everybody is yelling and screaming and threatening and doing these things. And so Stephen then, he is literally, people laid their hands on him, they seized him, and they drug him into Jerusalem. And before the the Sanhedrin, now the Sanhedrin was the, the Jewish court system. But it wasn't just one judge. Now there was the high priest who oversaw different things each year, but the Sanhedrin was a ruling body of elders, and they collectively would then make decisions regarding individuals or companies or whatever, just to make sure that you were abiding by the legalistic issues of the law. It included both different theological sides, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the difference between those two primarily was the fact of their understanding of resurrection. The Pharisees were, quote, fair, you see, because they believed that you died, there would be a resurrection of life and to heaven. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe that once you died that you would live again. And so they had a little bit of a difference, and so they were like, almost kind of like Republican and Democrat. They're these two bodies, but they have to work together in the court of the Sanhedrin. And they combined their efforts, which is unlike most political adversaries, and they both decided they don't like Stephen. And so they are here to listen to the charges that have been brought up against him, the charges that he has committed blasphemy against Moses in the temple and in the law of God. And as he's standing there accused of blasphemy, we're going to find four pleas that he presents on his behalf in our text today. And so he says, in essence, I'm not guilty, and here's why. Now, a lot of times you read in the New Testament, you see Paul's defense of the gospel. Stephen's a little bit different. He takes a defense of the gospel, but he doesn't present it necessarily through the eyes that are obvious that it's Jesus. He's going to go, and because he's a student of history, and especially the Jewish history, he takes them back through their own history and finds a commonality that they will all agree upon And as he weaves his words through history, he pulls into perspective some things that have been said and done that they have to see their fulfillment taking place today. But they don't want to hear it. So our text begins as the high priest. He asks a question here in chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest said, "Are, Are these things so? Oh, what things? Well, that that Stephen's been lying about Moses and lying about the law and lying about the temple, lying about all the things. Is he blaspheming what God has ordained? And so he's going to say, okay, are these things, is this real? Is this this really what he's saying? Are these things so? And, and, And most likely this high priest is Caiaphas. That name should ring a bell because he's the fellow who sat in judgment in the Sanhedrin against Jesus not too long ago and had stirred the people up to have Jesus crucified on a cross. This Caiaphas, but Stephen is going to answer those charges with not guilty. And he's going to prove it because of history. 
He's going to show that history has been on his side because they are repeating the sin of their fathers and their forefathers, resisting the Holy Spirit and the plan that God has set forth years ago. Now, it's a really large text, but we're going to try and go through verses 1 through 53. So we're going to read fast. All right? We'll break some things down. The first plea is this. The first plea is regarding God Himself. So verses 2 through 16, and He said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to his country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. I remember Abraham was 80 years old at this time. No kids. And God says, you're going to make descendants. At 80, most men would say, yeah, right. But Abraham doesn't. He believes him. And so he says he promised that he would give to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Now, they understand that. (laughs) Quickly, 400 years they were enslaved in Egypt. All right? They know, okay, he's speaking true history. He's he's bringing them back to Abraham who received the promise that I'm going to make you into a great nation of people and you're going to inherit this land that I'm going to take you to. Just get up and go and follow me. But there's going to be a period of time, God tells Abraham, that your descendants are going to be slayed for 400 years. All right, so he goes on. He says, in whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will be judge. Ten plagues, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt in all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in a tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. 
Now, now, Stephen first establishes groundwork in which they all believe. They all agree upon this. They, they go, this is our history. Yes, 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 yes. He knows our history because he's one of us. And he begins by saying that God is sovereign control over all things and that he is the God of glory. They, they like this. and it, it, I mean, that's a, it's a stunning statement because glory is a composite of all things that are God's. It's, it's, it's really His attributes. And when His glory invades, nothing else is around. Moses understood that when he'd go on the mountain and he'd talk with God and he'd come down with the laws. And, and his face shone because he was in the glory of God and the glory was just emanating itself from Moses as if it were lightning coming out. It, it, it just it takes over everything. And, and they agree that God is a God of glory and it's a rich description of their holy, almighty, and sovereign God. And he provides an atmosphere of belief on their part that they all can agree on. You're right. We remember Abraham. We remember Isaac. We remember Jacob. And we remember the 12 sons. We know exactly what they did to Joseph. And they sold him into slavery. And they treated him that way. And they put him in there. Now, here's what happens. As he's providing this atmosphere in which they all have this connection and a belief system that God is in control of Israel's destiny. They know that. God has been the one that has been moving and shaking things up to get them to where they are to this very moment. So now in using the example of Abraham, he makes a point that, number one, no one should stay put when God says go. All right? I mean, God, when God says we're going to change things up, you need to be willing to do it. And, and this is exactly what Abraham had done. God said, go. And Abraham said, okay, let's go. I don't know where. I don't know why. You're just telling me to go. I'll go. And he's willing to change his surroundings as an answer to God's call and his summons in his life. And, and he made no demands of God to know where he was going. Instead, he accepted that summons that I'm going to go and I'm going to do whatever you say. And he received the promise that he would never see fulfilled in his own lifetime. The promise that he's going to become a great nation. And Abraham dies before he even sees that. But we have to understand, and this is what he's getting at, God is a God of his promise. He's faithful to do what he says he will do. And he's demonstrating that in their history. So when God was preparing their future, four generations later, the patriarchs, they reject the one who was sent to deliver them, Joseph. That's why he brings him up. Joseph is the one, because the dreams are taking place, that God is giving him this ability to say, hey, you're going you're gonna to save your people. Joseph is going to be the one. And they listen to the dreams and they say, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. And they get jealous and they get angry and they get upset and they capture their brother. They throw him down in a pit in a well. And when some passing caravan of Midianite traders, they come traveling by, they say, hey, instead of killing him, let's make some money. And they sell him off as a slave. They don't want to accept the deliverer that God has prepared for them, Joseph. Catch that? They don't want to accept the deliverer that God has prepared for them. They're starting to think, starting to think. So 
as soon as God began to reveal his plans for them in Joseph's dream, they, they get rid of him. And Joseph was their ticket to a blessing, but because of their spiritual blindness and they didn't want to accept it, they ended up opposing God and his purpose. But because God is bigger than that, and he's bigger than evil, he still is going to use Joseph to save them, even though they want to reject him. And he's faithful to his promise and to his brothers. He had promised their great-grandfather Abraham that he was going to keep that promise through a chosen vehicle, and Joseph is initial in that. Now, now we don't know if Luke is writing the whole dialogue and the whole message in defense of Stephen at this time, but he's giving us some main points here at least. It's just laying it out. And he may have given us just some of the highlights, but subtly, Stephen is drawing a comparison that we can see. Note some of the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was condemned by false witness of Potiphar's wife. Jesus is condemned by false witnesses as well. Joseph was freed from prison and given the highest office in the land, and God freed Jesus from the prison of death and exalted him to the highest position at his right hand. And Joseph was able to deliver his brother from certain physical death, and Jesus delivers us from our spiritual death. And so that brings us to the second plea that Stephen makes. The second plea is regarding Moses. Let's look at verses 17 to 37. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had, assumed, had, had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. That 400 years, here it is. And until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when they saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. As he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The following day, he appeared to them, the Israelites, as they were fighting each other, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You did not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled, became an alien in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with fear, and he would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Now Stephen again makes a point that they all agree upon as he's making this statement about Moses. Moses was blessed, and they understood that, and he was designed by God to be their deliverer. Now now they they rejected Joseph. They're not going to reject Moses because it's obvious he's the one that God has set apart to be their deliverer. But what do they do? Initially, they they reject him. He he raises up this person of Moses saying he's lovely in the sight of God. And he demonstrates this immense respect that he has for Moses. And he understands and he respects his unique qualification to be the deliverer of Israel, he himself. But Stephen again points out this pattern of the people of Israel. The people reject deliverance. They're rejecting, once again, God's plan for a redeemer, a person who's going to deliver them out of their bondage. And when people reject their deliverance, Moses was ready to make a move and and be deliverer of Israel, but his own people questioned him, who made you a ruler and a judge? We don't want you. And when his own sin had been found out, he went away on the run. And for 40 years, finally he is recommissioned by God to go back into Egypt, standing there talking to a burning bush. And though he rejected, was rejected over and over again by the people of Israel, Moses stayed faithful to God. And the people were set free. Now Stephen again draws attention to his hearers about their need to change. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he's quoting that. Moses tells the people of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up one for you, a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Moses is telling them, there's going to come a point in time when God is going to raise up somebody from amongst us. And he is going to be the ultimate deliverer. He's going to be the one that you need to listen to. And Stephen is trying to say that that person has come in Jesus. So, he's going to make some some clarifications here about this. Moses is foretelling the Messiah. The the greater prophet was coming because God was faithful to provide him. And Stephen understands that this change has come, and because the Messiah has come, they're once again rejecting Moses. They're not revering him. And so let's look at the parallels now. Moses and Jesus. Moses, he humbled himself before Pharaoh's palace. And Jesus humbled himself and he became a man. 
Moses was rejected by Israel. Jesus was rejected by Israel. Moses was a shepherd and Jesus is the great good shepherd. Moses redeemed his people from their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus redeems all humanity from their bondage and slavery to sin. That brings us to the third plea that he has. The third one is this. It's found in verse 38 through 40. It's regarding the law. So he's, he's talked about God. He's talked about Moses. Now he's going to talk about the law. And so he says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, and he repudiated them in their hearts and turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. And at that time they made a calf, and they brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away, and he delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the books of the prophet. It was not to me that you were offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramphah, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. You see, God was... was he was so graciously present with them in the wilderness. He was there. He would go before them. He would lead them. He was there to communicate with them in a way that had not been done ever. And yet they didn't want it. They complained. <clears throat> when things didn't go smooth or their way, they grumbled. They murmured. They turned their back on Him. And they longed, I can't understand it, but they longed to return to Egypt to slavery because they thought it would be better than their freedom. And even though God's work was evident in their lives and it was all around them, continuing to follow the pattern of the past, the people rejected the law that God had set forth. And in fact, they rejected the law before they even received it. They didn't want it. They're down there on the mountainside making golden calf to worship instead of God. Can you imagine just, if it were just a month ago that you had just perceived all these ten plagues in your life, would you not understand that God was the God who did those? And now all of a sudden, well, where is he? Where is he? Where, where, where's Moses? We, we saw him go up on the mountain, and, and but he's been up there for a while, and so maybe he's dead. Who knows? Let's make our own God. And before he even brings the law down, which he had told them God was going to give them, they're creating another faith. They're creating their own God, and they rejected it. It was a demonstration that they were more interested in the work of their own hands and their own God than they could control. It was the people that consistently depended on their own wisdom, their own righteousness, their own morality, but they kept failing in everything they did. So now we come to his fourth plea. And he lays this out for them here in verses 44 through 50. And he says, that, 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 when you talk about the temple, when you talk about the temple of God, <laughs> that's where they are. They're at the temple. 
That's where the Sanhedrin presides. And it's, it's obvious there. Let's talk about that. We've talked about God. We've talked about Moses. We've talked about the law. And these are all things that you all are very proud of and you all are very astute in your knowledge of and, and you understand this. We've got common ground here. But he's chipping away piece by piece and presenting that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And now as they're standing there, he's saying, well, let's talk about the temple that we're here at. He says, our fathers, forefathers, they had the tabernacle. Not the temple. They had the tabernacle, and it was in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon disposing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, and heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You see, their Jewish leaders, Stephen is standing before, had overemphasized the importance of the temple. Especially this temple, which really wasn't built by Solomon. This temple was built after the one Solomon had been destroyed. This one here is built by King Herod, that pagan, heathenistic king that is ruling over them. What they really should have emphasized was that God is in essence a pilgrim with his people. He travels with them in their wilderness. He travels with them wherever they go. The tabernacle would move with his people. It wasn't located in any specific place. And so when their worship place was the tabernacle, it proved that God was always on the move with his people. Wherever God's people would go, he went with them. And wherever he had sent them, he accompanied them along the way. And therefore God was, in essence, in Mesopotamia with Abram, The temple wasn't the holy place there in Jerusalem. The temple is, a holy place is wherever God is. And so when he was in Mesopotamia with Abraham, it was holy. When he went on to Egypt, it was holy. When he went out into Midian with a burning bush, that place was holy. It wasn't just holy here in Jerusalem on this mountain in which Abraham was going to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. John MacArthur says this. He says, the temple, the temple was the symbol of God's presence, not the prison of his essence. It's the symbol of his presence, not the prison of his essence. Solomon, who built the first temple, he understood this. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon says this about the temple that he just built. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built? See, God cannot be confined. His presence cannot be localized. It's wherever He is. And Stephen is trying to get this across to the people there in Jerusalem. They have minimized their God, 
They have rejected him. They have rejected the law that he had presented them. They, they, they've turned their back on Moses and the prophets, and they have done the same thing here in the temple, which really isn't where God resides. And they have rejected the one whom he would send, which is Jesus. When Danette's son was four years old, she was in this woman's Bible study at her church, and they had classes for their children as well while the women were doing their own study. One day, her son came to her after the study, and when they were in the car, he said to him, Mom, I'm not going to sin anymore. Now, isn't that something every mother wants to hear from their son? I mean, that, that's, that's, that just you know, makes you just think, oh, wonderful. Now, granted, he's four years old. And so she decided she'd ask him a little more prodding questions as to why he, he said that. And so his answer was this. Well, Jesus said, if you don't sin, you can throw the first stone. And I want to be the one to throw the first stone. <laughs> oh, there's a difference as to why we're not going to sin. And you see, this group of Pharisees and Sadducees, this Sanhedrin, they had put them in a position where they felt, you know, we're pretty righteous on our own standing. And maybe we can be the ones to throw the first stone. Because after all, we're pretty good. They've rejected Jesus and everything. And you see, they thought they were good enough to accuse Stephen. Matter of fact, at this point, they're beginning to pick up stones ready for his execution. Now, I think we can understand that Stephen understands the danger he's in. But he's going to push it. And he turns the charges back on them. And he accuses his accusers. His plea of not guilty has been a defensive position, but now he's going to go on the offense. And listen what he says here at the very ending of this passage in 51, 52, and 53. He says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now he's not giving them smooth talk anymore, is he? He's found that commonality of their history together, but now he's saying, you are exactly the same as all of our forefathers have. They rejected the plan that God has established. They rejected the deliverers that He would send. They rejected the law that He had established for them. They've rejected everything, and they've turned their back on Him, and they begin to do other things. He says, you're doing exactly what they have done. You're rejecting the plan and the purpose of God. He calls them, you're like your fathers, you're stubborn and refuse to bow before God. Matter of fact, the New Living Translation identifies it this way. He says that they are still heathen still at heart and deaf to the truth. In other words, you're just as bad as the Gentiles around you. He believes that they're far from following the great men of faith that they profess to admire and to follow. And in fact, they're, they're, they're better identified with idolatrous people, people who oppose the faith in God throughout history of Israel. They're just repeat offenders. 
They've rejected Joseph, they've rejected Moses, they've rejected the law, they've rejected the prophets, and now they have rejected Jesus, who is their Messiah, the one who truly was to bring them freedom. And they're continuing this historical disobedience in spite of the amazing privileges that God has given them. When God had brought the Messiah, they acted like He was a nobody. And they murdered the Son of God. And I think their example is a warning to us. We must not set ourselves up in opposition to God. You see, God is always calling for fresh adventures. He's pointing out the way for us to understand the history of Israel is our history as well of faith. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we recognize that He is the fulfillment of generation after generation, of promises after promises that God started way back at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when man sinned. And He promised that He would make things right through one who would be born of a woman. And He does that in Jesus what are we going to do? We need Jesus. We need to be followers of Him. When God calls us to change our lifestyle, we need to be willing. We need to hear. We need to act. We need to move. We need to fulfill His purposes in us. Let's not be repeat offenders. You see, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and intercedes on our behalf even today to redeem us, to deliver us. We can't reject Him. We're going to have an invitation.